Hey everyone, glad to have you all back. Before we get started, I wanted to share this really good book I'm reading. It's called Covering Islam by Edward Said, whom I'm sure many of you have heard of. I recently discovered the author and I've been reading his books. Basically, the book looks at historical events with relation to Western media and how in the recent past, media has unjustly portrayed Islam and Muslims. Honestly, it's getting me to think about journalistic integrity and the ways in which truth and the sharing of truth can be distorted by power and fear. In fact, I recently wrote an op-ed about this. It's available on our social media platforms. I wrote it for Medium, so you can check it out there as well. There are so many versions of reality that I struggle with and that's something that I talk about in my op-ed as well. And as someone whose community is at the receiving end and reading this book in a way has allowed me to reclaim these different realities, I in a way feel vindicated because the book reasserts some of my fears and how I see other people, especially reporters in the West, approaching one-dimensional narratives about Muslims. I bet more than a few of you are also chipping away at your own formation of a reading list, one which you had promised yourself but never acted upon. Now moving to our today's guest, we have a tireless advocate and leader for the rights of refugees. Her resume includes being an advisor for Secretary of State Clinton and Kerry and with Michelle Obama herself as the First Lady's Policy Director. Her work has largely focused around public and foreign affairs concerning immigration and refugees and that has carried over to her current role as the President and CEO of the Lutheran Immigrant Refugee Services. Fun fact, she is the first non-Lutheran and second refugee to lead this organization. Talk about breaking glass ceilings. I'm sure my conversation with Krish O'Mara is going to be great. Can't wait for you to hear what she has to say. So let's get started. Ninety-nine percent of us hmm. came here um, one way or the other, right, from another right. country. Right, and that's where it's just you know when you look at just the policies that are in place right now, none of it makes sense. Krish, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to learn about your work, um, get your perspective on some of the current issues in this country, right? So I feel like if we talk about the issues, the issues will disappear somehow. Yeah. And we'll also talk about your upbringing, what sort of forces you think got you to where you are right now. So it, it's, a, it's a laundry list. We'll see if we can get through at least the important parts. So I will start with what did you do before you were the CEO and president of Lutheran Immigrant and Refugee Services. And what led you to your current role? Yeah, so I served in the Obama administration for five years. Uh, I was a senior advisor at the State Department for three, and then at the White House, um, serving as policy director to First Lady Michelle Obama for two. Um, after I came out of the White House, I actually thought that I was finally going to get 
a little bit of a break, a moment to catch my breath, but I actually ran for governor of Maryland in the 2018 election. Okay, so let's talk about your role as policy director for First Lady Michelle Obama. Were there any initiatives that you're most proud of during your tenure there? Yeah, um, Let Girls Learn was the First Lady and President Obama's um, joint international initiative. It was the only international initiative that uh, Michelle launched while in the White House. And Hmm. I was especially proud of that program because it was very personal to me. Uh, My mother came to the U.S. um, as a teacher ambassador. Um, She had me when she was 42. She got her Ph.D. when she was Mm -hmm. 62. And so girls and women's education um, had always been an issue that, uh, you know, my mother cared about, that she ingrained in me as her daughter, Uh, the opportunity to work on global girls' education around the world, but also here at home in the U.S., um, was an opportunity of a lifetime. Um, It's sad to think that still today we have 62 million girls who are not getting uh, an education um, in terms of a secondary education. And that is due to barriers ranging from cultural ones, to uh, menstruation, um, to economic factors. And so that opportunity to launch um, the initiative, which is actually um, the one initiative she really is singularly focused on now um, Mm -hmm. in her post-White House life, I think reflects the importance of it um, and its legacy. So, Krish, when we talk about girls' education, at least I think of education for girls in developing nations, right? Mm -hmm. I grew up in Pakistan, so that's the first thing that comes to my mind. But what does lack of education or lack of access to education look like in America? And what are some of the challenges that people face in the U.S. and don't talk about as much? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, some of the communities that we spoke to who were, you know, domestic Americans Mm. were, were sometimes shocked to think about how this is an issue that we face at home. Um, You know, we have thousands of girls who drop out of school. Um, Some of them return, some of them don't. Um, Many of the reasons we see um, here in the U.S. are related to um, economics. Uh, A child who first started working after school Hmm. um, and, you know, just to help the family, um, a single parent, be able to pay rent um, every month. Hmm. Turns out that, you know, maybe the mother ends up um, losing her job. And so the girl has to um, take on a full-time job. Hmm. Um, You know, in some cases, uh, you know, this is rarer, but we do still have some cases of where girls' education is not valued as much as a boy's. And Hmm. so, um, you know, the child will initially be homeschooled. Um, You know, you still have parents who are fearful of sending their girls to school. Um, but that ends up, you know, meaning that, you know, the standard of homeschool is not adequate. And so if we actually were to apply um, tests, uh, you know, that are kind of a national standard, we couldn't say that they actually completed their secondary education. Um, and it's sad to think that, you know, arguably the U.S. is the leader of the free world, and yet we are still not able to educate all of our girls. This is so interesting. And you bring up disparity between girls and boys' education which to me is 
a total surprise when it comes to the US. Again, I think of Pakistan, right? That's my reference point. And I do understand there are cultural reasons for why people in Pakistan, especially people who are economically challenged, would probably prefer boys to have education because of limited resources, right? But I never thought this was happening in the US as well. Why don't we talk about it as much? Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, there are some great groups that are exclusively focused domestically, like uh, Girls Inc. You know, their focus mm. is is particularly city centers, because that is where we see it more. But honestly, mm. you can also see it in rural areas as well. But, you know, the truth is, here in the U.S., we feel as though, you know, we've solved our education issues. Um, Even the disparity in our educational systems that apply to both girls and boys that is driven largely by how we fund school, it's driven by property taxes, right? And we don't want to talk about the fact that Mm. we have stepped away from this idea of education as a civic good. Um, Instead, when you fund it largely on property taxes and wealthy areas, you know, nutrier, um, school system in, in the Chicago area, right, which can mm-hmm. get which gets um, multiples of the funding of an inner city, you know, location on, let's say, the south side of Chicago. Those disparities are very real, but mm-hmm. they also raise deeper questions that I'm not sure we want to tackle um, because they're uncomfortable about, you know, what is a public good? Um, mm-hmm. What is a responsibility that we all own? And so we have to help pay for. Um, Those are the things that we're not comfortable uh, talking about here in the U.S. That's so true. Now, obviously, you're not working for the White House anymore. And with distance comes perspective, right? So what I would like to ask you here is the kind of work that you did with the First Lady and the team that you had. Do you ever think that you could have pushed harder for certain initiatives or certain programs? And do you tend to relive and think and say, oh, um, I wish I did this or I should have done, you know, X, Y, Z at the time and I had the opportunity and the means, but I didn't. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, um, uh, especially in the last several months, realized that life is too short um, Mm. to, uh, you know, dwell too much on regret um, unless you can act on it. You know, I, I think there's definitely areas where, you know, I, I it's just it's a limited amount of time and you have the ability to affect change on such a massive scale that, of mm-hmm. course, there are things that I wish that we had um, ingrained in a better way so that they didn't get overturned um, mm-hmm. as quickly as they did by this administration, um, you know, sadly, because uh, it was difficult to get legislation through. Um, some of the things were done by executive order, which made them, you know, reversible. Hmm. It's it's the complexity of navigating um, kind of the path that you choose, right? Of, right? Do you try to reach more of a middle ground and compromise so that there's a possibility of getting congressional legislation? Do you realize that the presidency has an incredible power with it that you try to exercise through executive order? Mm. Um, You know, I, I think it is really sad when you look at U.S. politics, how policies get changed 
um, so quickly because yeah. of ego, each administration wanting to do their own set of prep projects. Um, exactly. I'm really proud that there were certain things that we built on that were from prior administrations. Um, mm. You know, the idea of a Democratic administration doubling down on a Republican initiative, it feels completely foreign to think about this moment, right? But when yeah. you think about things like the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which was created by President Bush, um, but something that we increased funding for, mm. it's just a reflection of, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, that was done. And I do hope that we'll return to a time that, you know, was less partisan, but I feel like on many fronts, um, I, I have that, that sentiment. <laughs> Let's pivot a little, Krish, and talk about your current role. So before we do that, I want to make sure we set ourselves up for an informed and more accessible conversation, if that even makes sense. So considering the subject matter that we are going to delve into and your work, which is incredibly important, I think there are some key terms we should quickly define. I've seen people use terms like immigrants, migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, interchangeably, which shouldn't be the case. So from a human rights perspective and legal status perspective, can you define these terms for us? Let's start with what it means to be an immigrant, a refugee, and so on. So, you know, an immigrant is more of a colloquial term, um, which I interpret as an individual who has moved across an international border and uh, arrived in a new country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a migrant is someone who they could have crossed an international border, but they also could be internally displaced, meaning that they have moved from one part of their home country to another part. Mm -hmm. um, there's a connection because obviously, you know, there's a, a kind of progressive sequencing. Oftentimes what you'll find is that um, an individual or family that initially migrated internally, hmm. uh, you know, will experience instability or realize that the change or the migration didn't actually solve the underlying problem. And so they may, you know, immigrate across a international border. Right. Um, in terms of the terms refugee and asylum seeker, great question, because I do think that there is a lot of confusion around that. Hmm. And some of it is intentional and some of it is unintentional. So a refugee is an individual who is outside of uh, his or her um, home country. Mm. And they, and this is, you know, a, a definition um, from the United Nations, um, and they have a well-founded fear of persecution. And that persecution needs to be based on kind of membership um, into a certain group. So uh, the persecution needs to be based on race, um, mm. religion, you know, nationality, or it's them being a member of a group um, that is defined, you know, politically or, you know, a kind of a social um, group. Mm. Um, an asylum seeker, you know, so, so refugees who come to the U.S. come from all over the world, Democratic Republic of Congo, Afghanistan, Iraq, Ukraine. Mm. A asylum seeker is someone, you know, typically we're using this term to describe um, those crossing our southern border 
So mm. they are not going to a third country in order to be resettled into the U.S. or a Western, you know, European nation, let's say. They are going to the U.S., for example, and seeking asylum directly. So they're right. going to the country that they hope to be relocated in and are claiming a credible fear um, based on similar criteria in terms of, you know, war, or violence, persecution. That's a great description. And also just to clarify, people cannot apply for asylum from their home countries. There is no way to do that. They have to be present at the port of entry um, and they should have entered U.S. to do that. That's correct, right? Exactly. Right. So which particular groups does your organization conduct its advocacy around and what kind of services does the organization offer? So uh, short answer is all of the uh, all of the above. Hmm. Um, and the longer answer is, um, you know, so our history uh, is rooted in refugee resettlement. Um, we okay. began in 1939, um, you know, just around the time of the Second World War, where Lutherans um, hmm. who had had been displaced um, were resettling in the U.S. But that mandate very quickly expanded um, hmm. to uh, Vietnamese refugees, Cuban refugees, lost boys and girls. Today, as I mentioned, they're coming from all over the world. And essentially mm. what we do is um, we, you know, once they have arrived, once they've been cleared to travel to the U.S., mm. we begin our connection with them. We, we meet them at the airport. We have identified an apartment, um, you know, new housing for them to settle into. Mm. We have uh, furnished that home um, with, you know, modest furnishings, um, even culturally familiar food in the refrigerator. Mm. Um, many of those are, you know, supported through our uh, kind of um, community network. Mm. Um, and then over the course of the first few months, we have case managers who help support them, um, help navigate their arrival into a new community. So adults are enrolled in cultural orientation, English classes, children are enrolled in school. Um, we help guide them through everything from how to use public transportation to accessing community resources. We know, uh, you know, while I would love to be able to support them for years and years, the time that we can support them formally is really just a few months. And so our mm. hope is to connect them to new neighbors, community groups, uh, you know, churches potentially um, that can help them in terms of support and companionship for years to come. We also um, work with asylum seekers. So along the southern border, as we saw an increase in border crossings and Particularly, there was a change in who we would expect to arrive at the southern border. Hmm. Before, it used to be a single male. What we've seen hmm. in the last few years is that it's really family units. It's typically a child and a parent. And so as they cross the border, our process through Customs and Border Patrol, what has been really terrible to see in the last few years is that we would have a family dropped off hmm. in the middle of the night at a public park, a bus depot, mm. with literally nothing but the clothes on their backs. And um, what we set up were basically pop-up shelters. So mm. we would help, um, we would do medical screenings. We would, uh, you know, give them showers. Um, we'd provide room and board. We would contact 
a potential sponsor. Most of the people mm-hmm. who come have some connection to a family member, extended family um, here in the U.S. And so we would connect with that family member and um, arrange the logistics of their travel to get to their final destination. Mm-hmm. We also work very closely with children. Uh, we have a particular expertise when it comes to children. And so, um, you know, when the family separation crisis hit two summers ago, Hmm. Um, we were actually one of the two organizations that the government turned to to basically get them out of the mess and to help hmm. reunify these poor children with their parents or guardians. Today, what our work is, um, you know, sadly, the southern border has essentially been shut even to children who are fleeing human trafficking. But what we try to do is, you know, as these unaccompanied children, basically, you know, children who are coming over alone, hmm. um, cross the border, as I said, again, many of them have a family member, a parent, an aunt mm. and uncle here in the U.S. So we will contact that potential sponsor. We will take care of the children in the time that it takes for us to contact the sponsor, make sure that they are who they say they are, that we're putting them into a safe environment. And so much of that time when we're, you know, they're in our, the children are in our care or custody, mm. um, we will try to place them with a foster care parent and we call this our transitional foster care program because we don't want to put them into you know kind of some large warehouse or a you know tent shelter we know that we want to provide to them what we would want to provide to any of our children um, which is you know a safe small family-centric home Um, and so that's just kind of a few examples the final thing I'll mention is you know we also work on kind of economic empowerment of immigrants Mm. We know that so many come and they are ambitious, they are self-reliant, um, they're industrious, they're entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. So we have partnerships with Starbucks focused on refugee uh, youth career pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, we work with Walmart on upskilling. So how do we get a new American not just into that entry level, that first job, mm-hmm. but how do we help work with them to get into a job that actually matches their skill set um, you know, and, and their abilities? I just want to ask a question about what you said a few minutes ago about how the dynamic has changed. Initially, you would see just one person, one male coming to the border, and now you see a family unit. Why do you think, Krish, that's happening? Why that shift? So I think it's a couple of reasons. Um, Part of what we are seeing, and and this has been historically true as well, but Hmm. there are no holds barred in terms of the violence um, inflicting people, families, particularly in in Central America right now. Mm. And so as we see gang violence that's targeting uh, women, children, you know, uh, males, that means that it's no longer a single male who is, you know, potentially hoping to um, get a job here, you know, and, um, and send money back home. We are seeing families who are being attacked, um, you know, by gang members. We are seeing increases in uh, violence against women, um, mm. rapes. Uh, and so as a result, we're seeing families as a unit come across. Um, so that's just to say that, you know, the economic rationale that we saw historically speaking, it is definitely not the the sole reason that we're seeing people coming across the border. If we talk like broadly speaking, it's understood that people are fleeing because it is unsafe in their countries of origin, right? Are we looking at who is making it unsafe 
for people to flee their home countries? Are we looking into the role of other countries, the role of U.S. being in some instances contributor to certain wars? And I'm not talking about southern borders specifically, but I'm talking more about the Middle East. Um, For instance, uh, not just Middle East, like I'm talking about Iraq and Afghanistan as well, where U.S. has played a major role in terms of its direct military intervention, which has led to the kind of increase in refugee numbers that we are seeing right now. Do you think we are talking enough about those things? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think um, the simple answer is no. And mm. it's a important aspect of this issue that is only going to grow in importance and significance because if we don't address the root causes, um, you know, we're simply, you know, dealing with, with kind of putting a Band-Aid on the real source of the problem. And, you know, I think that you raised some very good areas of where, you know, U.S. foreign policy um, has clearly been destabilizing um, mm. and, you know, certainly has contributed to migration. But I also think it raises um, a couple other points that I think are really important to highlight. One is when we talk about migration today, hmm. the biggest root cause, it may seem sometimes um, surprising when I mention this to people, two-thirds of migrants that we say uh, see today hmm. are actually driven from their original homes due to the climate crisis. Um, no, I'm not surprised. And yeah. there is no region in the world hmm. that is immune from this, right? If you talk about Asia, if you talk about Africa, and frankly, even if you talk about the U.S., right? Hmm. The climate crisis is only going to grow in significance. And, and right now we still have, um, we already have about 20 million people every year who are uh, being forced to migrate as a result of that. And so that is where I think that the issue of instability, the way in which kind of a militarized approach, uh, the fact that we are failing to respond to the climate crisis at the scale with which we need to respond, are all creating the migration streams that we are seeing. And so the idea of, you know, contributing to those factors Hmm. while at the same time closing our borders yeah. is precisely how we have gotten into the chaos and the extremely dire situation that we're facing right now. And then just the final um, smaller point I want to make is it, it's also really important to recognize how directly we are creating an issue hmm. and refusing to address it. So I think a good example is... Um, SIVs. So these are special mm. immigrant visas that are issued. Mm-hmm. These are for the individuals who serve as interpreters, translators, drivers, mm. helping American forces abroad, right, during their mm. deployments. And because we know that allying with American forces endangers those individuals and their families, our promise to them is that we will protect them, right? Um, you know, when all is said and done. And, you know, just to give you one example from this past year, the U.S. had reserved 4,000 slots for Iraqi nationals hmm. um, who fall into that category. We only resettled 123 of them. Mm-hmm. And this is one mm-hmm. of those issues where, you know, look, I know so much of immigration policy is politicized right now. It is, But yeah. even in those areas, 
where there is bipartisan an agreement that we need to do more, that we mm. have a responsibility, you still are seeing inaction. This is such a good point, Krish. And going back to climate change, U.S. has led the world in carbon emissions as well, right? Well, I mean, and then on top of that, of course, pulling out of the Paris Accord, right? Exactly. And coming back to what you just said, I just want to mention something that people probably don't think about as much. When we talk about refugee resettlement in Europe and America, what we need to recognize and acknowledge is that any European country or America are not even among the top five hosting countries in the world. Most countries that are hosting refugees are developing nations like Turkey, like Iran, Lebanon, Jordan, Pakistan. Pakistan has hosted more than one million Afghan refugees. I was a kid in the 80s when people from Afghanistan started coming in. So that's something to remember. And as you pointed out, on the one hand, America is slashing humanitarian aid to developing nations. So either if you don't want refugees to come to your country, which by the way, I've heard and please correct me if I'm wrong, refugees prefer to stay in the regions of origin. So refugees would much rather stay in Turkey, but they move to Europe because they don't have economic opportunities. Turkey doesn't have the kind of economic opportunities to absorb refugees, so they move from Turkey to countries in Europe. So if European nations or America wants to help, they should at least increase their humanitarian aid. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, this is where, you know, there are ways in which we can try to, you know, sort of stem the tide um, in terms of investing to address the the issues, the underlying root causes mm. of these problems. But, you know, certainly in the last few years, we have seen a complete disinvestment, this theory that, you know, nations cause these problems on their own. And so they are yeah. on their own and in, in um, in solving them. N- none of it makes sense. Um, it is completely undermining our own interests. It is ignoring um, our responsibility and role hmm. uh, in, in, you know, in, in these situations. And then I think just the, the final point I'll mention in terms of, you know, just kind of the end point um, hmm. of, of what, what happens and what does this mean for the U.S. It is also just not in U.S. interest to try to close our borders. Um, right. it, is, it has never been... Uh, you know, kind of the American way. 99% of us hmm. came here um, one way or the other, right, from another right. country. Right. And that's where it's just, you know, when you look at just the policies that are in place right now, none of it makes sense. So, Krish, talking about this, if you were trying to explain to a person about why it is important that U.S. accepts refugees and assists in their resettlement. What points would you make, other than the ones that you've already mentioned, other than the fact that U.S. is a signatory to 1967 protocol of the Refugee Convention, which makes it, I'm assuming, legally binding on the U.S.? Most of these instruments, some of these instruments are not legally binding, so I'm not sure if this is. You would know more. Um, but other than that, what kind of case would you make? Yeah, in terms of our responsibility, it is not just uh, based on international law, but the fact that here in the U.S. we have signed the Refugee Act of 1980, um, you know, mm. which created the formal refugee assistance program. And I think what I would say is, first, 
I think it's really important to recognize that refugee resettlement has always been a bipartisan program. We've resettled mm -hmm. more refugees under Republican administrations than Democratic ones. President Reagan resettled the highest number of refugees of any president. Um, mm -hmm. You know, second, I think I would stress the fact that uh, you know, I'm very much a, a numbers-driven uh, person. And when you look at the data, there is overwhelming mm. support to show how refugees are a net contributor in a substantial way. So even under this administration, mm. there was a study done that was initially, mm. you know, there was an attempt to suppress it, but it showed that when you look at, a, you know, a, an extended time period of about a decade, um, even mm. taking into account the minimal federal assistance that a refugee receives, uh, refugees mm. are a net contributor to the tune of $63 billion. And I think mm. it's just really important to recognize, you know, and this is not just true of refugees, but those immigrants who are willing to uproot themselves, right, and mm. flee to a far-flung nation that is completely mm foreign to them, oftentimes with very little or next to nothing, um, and right. start a new life, they are risk takers. They are entrepreneurial, mm. right? They are willing mm. um, to mm. believe and to, and to go for it. And, and that is the spirit that, of course, we would want to foster here in the mm. U.S., and then I think just the, the final point, and I want to stress this just because there has been some rhetoric that you've seen and heard at political rallies in even just the last mm. few weeks about, you know, mm. Somali Americans being Islamic terrorists and, mm. you know, refugee camps that are going to make the U.S. more dangerous as criminals mm. come over and try to, you know, rape and pillage. It is absolutely absurd. And what mm. we see is, you know, there was a study done that looked at the top 10 nations that, re uh, sorry, top 10 cities that received mm. immigrants, specifically refugees um, per capita. And nine of the 10 became substantially safer, everything from violent crimes to economic crimes. The one exception was West Springfield, Massachusetts, because it was going through an opioid epidemic, a spike at that time. Mm. And I just think it's really important to understand that accepting refugees is not just the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do. Sometimes when we structure our arguments within the context of economic viability, I'm almost reluctant to go that route. And the reason why I say that is because I feel like if we tie refugees or even immigrants to their economic viability, then we are allowing people to question somebody's usefulness. For instance, if we talk about unskilled refugees or if we talk about older refugees, then how do we make a case for them? Do you feel that happening? Do you think we need to recalibrate our approach in some ways and not focus too much on economic benefits that accrue to countries that admit refugees? Yeah, it's a it's a very fair question. Having having run an, a national organization that operates in some of the reddest states and the bluest states and everything mm. in between, um, the truth is I, I know that we have to fight fire with fire. And by that, I mean, I don't want us to cede by not responding 
to the fear-mongering and the xenophobia that we hear out there in terms of, oh, immigrants are going to come here and they're going to steal your job. I want to say, look, if you actually want to address that myth, then let's let's actually do some fact-finding here. And the truth is that when right. you look at you know immigrants, you know that they are actually job makers as opposed to job takers. But but I think you know part of why I, I stress and I always think it's really important to be clear that it is both the right thing to do, which should be sufficient for some demographics, but also the smart thing to do. I just want to be clear that on pretty much every front, I don't think there is a single area or kind of line of argument that justifies the kind of xenophobic or white Hmm. nationalist um, kind of rhetoric and the policies that are implemented based on them that makes sense. Hmm. And that's why I think it is really important for us to have a robust conversation. I mean, of course, I think at the root of it, we have to recognize who we are as a nation and what it means. Hmm. You know, um, I'm actually uh, doing a a panel today um, about a play that, you know, is, Hmm. um, you know, it's basically a, a, a kind of a contestant game of who's worthy to come to America. Hmm. And I, and I, you know, the, the, it's a, it's a, the aim is to ask that question of, should we be asking the question, right? Do you need to Hmm. be worthy? Hmm. Um, You know, right now there's a lot of language about the good immigrant. And I do think that there is a risk when you talk about the model minority or anything like that. But I just think that it's really important for us to be clear that as a nation, we were, I mean, you know, we've got to recognize the horrendous history when it comes to our treatment of Native Americans, the stain on our society in terms of slavery. But I think it also has to be that people need to recognize how we were founded as a nation. Today, sometimes you hear people saying, well, you know, they're coming for economic reasons. And it's like, do you recall why so many migrations came to this country? They were economic migrations. Why did all of a sudden economic migration become an inexcusable reason to migrate to the U.S.? And that makes sense. And I'm so glad you talked about genocide and you talked about slavery because it's also important to do introspection because there were things like the Chinese Exclusion Act and there was a ban on South Asians in 1900s, early 1900s. So I, on the one hand, I agree that as a nation, uh, America has welcomed refugees and immigrants um, and asylum seekers. But at the same time, there are parts of American history that are not discussed as much that show that we've had family separation even prior to 2017. We've had bans on certain communities even before the Muslim ban. And until we reconcile with that dark part of our history, it is difficult for us to move forward and say, you know what, we need to course correct here. No, and I, and I think this is where, you know, even knowing that refugees fleeing the Nazi regime came to the U.S. seeking refuge and were turned away, that has to make us remember, right? When we say never again, what does that mean? Trish, I just want to switch gears a little and ask you about your family's journey from Sri Lanka. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Um, I appreciate the opportunity. So my parents were uh, part of the ethnic and religious um, Tamil minority, and they left Sri Lanka 
as it was on the brink of civil war. Um, they brought my brother and, and me um, to this country when I was nine months old. So I was actually born in Sri Lanka. They came uh, with no jobs, um, just about $200 in their pockets and you know us as two very young kids in their arms. When we arrived, we came to Baltimore and we were very much strangers on foreign soil. Thankfully, we were welcomed by our community in Baltimore. Uh, you know, my father's taught as a teacher in the Baltimore City school system. Mm. And it was his colleagues who found us the basement apartment that we moved into. They literally helped us move into the apartment. They vouched mm. for them as, um, you know, my parents started a, a bank account. And I realize, you know, especially when I, you know, look at the news today, go to work every day. Uh, there is definitely a, a serious doubt in my mind. If we had tried to come today rather than in 1980, I wonder if we would have been led into the country. How much of your work is informed by your family's background, your own upbringing? All of it. You know, I think uh, even knowing, you know, I have a three-year-old daughter and I know that her life will be easier because my mm. own parents' lives were hard. To me, that's the American dream, right? That is at the heart of what we do at LIRS. And, you know, a moment ago, you mentioned family separation. I take to, you know, my work every day, the fact that, you know, even if, uh, you know, she went up to see her grandparents for a week this summer hmm. and I was heartbroken, I, I can't, I mean, I literally cannot imagine what it would be to have her ripped from my arms with no idea where she was going in a foreign country. And I think that is sometimes the lack of empathy that, mm. um, you know, we allow today this calloused indifference, um, you know, even the use of certain terms when it comes to immigration, right. Um, and illegal, what makes mm. a person illegal, um, right. And, and alien is the illegal alien or even in the terminology with children, unaccompanied alien child, UAC mm. is what we still use today. I refuse to use those terms because I think they are inhumane, but Absolutely. that is what has allowed for these policies uh, to be put in place. That's so true. In the end, Krish, how can we build more awareness around refugee rights and lives so that it isn't just seen as a service or pure advocacy, but rather collective action for basically preserving human rights. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. Well, things like, um, you know, having me on your podcast are so helpful. So thanks so much. Um, and to the audience for listening. Uh, you know, I think part of this is realizing that immigration will always be an issue that you know, time and time again becomes politicized. Um, you know, your mm. point on realizing our history is a really important lesson that we need to learn and we need to mm. take from these last few years. This mm. is where we need to have a grassroots movement around this, Absolutely. right? We need to realize that these are our immigrant brothers and sisters. We need to realize that there's a connection between mm. these issues and racial justice issues. It should surprise mm. no one that it was Customs and Border Patrol officers and potentially ICE agents that got deployed to Portland, Oregon, when mm. we had attacks on, um, you know, uh, Americans who were protesting. That is, right, the collective boat that we are all in. And I think that this is where giving voice to the voiceless, speaking out on these issues, you know, contacting your member of Congress, 
so that they realize that, you know, sure, maybe an undocumented person doesn't have the right to vote, but their, you know, sister or brother or friend and supporter cares mm-hmm. about their plight and, you know, is refusing to let them become a political pawn. That's really important. Of course, um, you know, even our foster care program, what I mentioned in terms of the community co-sponsorship when it comes to mm-hmm. refugees, people can get directly involved in the work. And so if you go to www.lirs.org, mm-hmm. um, you can learn about ways to engage on different campaigns that we have during the pandemic. We had one called Hope Cannot Be Quarantined. And the idea was to realize that, you know, in detention centers that were just horrific conditions, um, that, you know, we could even help put some, you know, limited funds into commissary accounts to buy basic things like soap. Um, You know, that's where if anyone has an ability to um, support LIRS with a donation, this is how we were able to support programs like um, Our Neighbors in Need, which is an emergency fund we started with the pandemic, knowing that so many of our immigrant brothers and sisters lost their jobs because they were in, you know, um, the tourism industry or, uh, you know, some were uh, risking their lives because they were meatpacking workers, those sorts of things. Mm. But yeah, please just stay engaged. Um, You know, even if we have a change of administration, we're not going to be able to overturn the devastation that the immigration field has experienced overnight. But with your help, I think we can make some real headway quickly. Thank you so much, Krish. And we will be releasing this episode after the election. We are recording it a couple of weeks, in fact, before the election. So we don't know what's going to happen. But as Krish said, we can still be involved. We can still contribute and be part of the change. Absolutely. I mean, this is where Uh, You know, regardless of the outcome, there are ways in which we will continue to meet our mission of helping our immigrant brothers and sisters. And that's where we need the community support. Thank you so much, Krish. I really appreciate you coming on Immigrantly and the walk that you do. Thank you for everything you do to raise the importance of these issues. Thanks for having me. Wow. This was so good and so informative. So next time when you are angry at refugees because you think they may take your jobs or they invade your privacy and your space, remember that refugees are forced out of their homes. And also try to answer the question, who makes their homes unsafe? And maybe if you can answer the latter, you may find empathy for refugees coming to the United States. Until next time, when we have another amazing guest. Take care.